0: go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. I hope that you are reading through the Bible with us. We will eventually catch up with the readings here on Sunday mornings, but there's a lot of important material to cover in the first couple of books of the Bible. You know, Ben sort of introduced the sermon through his uh, children's message today about the rules that every relationship needs. And, and there truly are rules that govern the relationships of parents and their kids, the way kids are to treat their parents and parents are to treat their children. There are rules that, that govern friendships, as Ben said. There are rules that govern how employees and employers interact with each other, how businesses and customers interact, how teachers and students interact with each other. And since Valentine's Day is Tuesday, I thought I'd share some relationship rules for keeping your marriage happy and healthy. And like most really good rules, these come from children, seven, eight, nine-year-olds. Ricky, age seven, said, spend most of your time loving instead of going to work. Aaron, age eight, said, don't forget your wife's name, that will mess up the love. Dave, age 8, said, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. (laughs) Kevin, age 10, said, tell your wife she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. (laughs) And Sophie, age 7, said, don't say you love somebody and then change your mind. Love isn't like picking out what movie you want to watch. True words of wisdom. You know, there are also rules for our relationship with God. And we know these rules better as commandments. And these are some serious relationship rules. They're they're not arbitrary. They're not like, you know, being a friend with someone because they like chicken strips or not. These are given out of love so that sinful people can be in relationship with a holy God. God created us to be in a relationship with Him, but as we have talked about already, sin broke that relationship. It it drove humanity from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. But God on that very day made a promise that He would do something about sin, that He would heal this broken relationship, that He would bring people back into His presence once more. And so God chose a nation, the Israelites, to be the means by which He would bring redemption and renewal to His sin-sick creation. But first, God had to rescue and and deliver His people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt and bring them to a new land, the land that He promised to their forefather Abraham, this land that would be a, a reflection of the Garden of Eden. It would be a place where people could once again live in the presence of God. Now, we talked about that last week, the Exodus, and how God redeemed and rescued His people from slavery with His mighty hand and His outstretched arm. Can you just take a moment with me and imagine being an Israelite for the first time in your life standing on the other side of the Red Sea in complete freedom? Your oppressors, your past, drowned in that Red Sea. God said to them, you will never see the Egyptians again. And now the dust has settled, and the journey to this promised land lies before you. And now there's some serious questions rolling around in your mind. Questions like, who exactly is this God who has rescued us and claimed us as His own? Where is He leading us, and what are His intentions for us? What does it look like to live as this God's chosen people in the world? In other words, how exactly is this relationship supposed to work? If you're like me, you probably read these stories like the Exodus and you long to see God work today like you did back then, right? I mean, who here hasn't thought, if I could just see God perform some amazing miracles, if I could just hear Him talk to me from a burning bush, if I could just experience what they experienced, then, man, I would be a changed person, I would never doubt. I would never disobey God. I would become so on fire for Jesus, I'd win my whole community to Christ today. You've probably thought that before. Well, that's not exactly how it worked out for the Israelites. (laughs) In fact, after everything they saw and everything they experienced firsthand, I mean, they were there, they witnessed these things. How did they respond? By complaining a lot. We're hungry, we're thirsty. Are we there yet? You ever heard that before? But with every complaint, this amazingly patient and merciful God came through and miraculously provided fresh water from rocks, mysterious bread from the sky. But when they had all of that, they still complained. They complained about the limited menu items. You know, it's just all we got is bread. What about some meat, God? At one point, they even wanted to kill Moses for all their woes, as if it was his fault. But in the nick of time, they arrived at Mount Sinai, and their attitude improved for a little while. This mountain, Mount Sinai, was the place that God had chosen to reveal Himself to His people, to enter into this sacred covenant with them. So Moses ascends up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God on the people's behalf. And God immediately explained to Moses the nature of their relationship. He defined what kind of nation Israel was to be. And that's what we see here in Exodus 19. Let's begin in verse 3. We're going to read through verse 6 right now. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you were to say to the house of Jacob, what you were to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Israel's national identity would always be as the people who God miraculously rescued from slavery in Egypt. It would be impossible for them to define themselves apart from God's saving acts. They could rest secure in the knowledge that they belonged to God. They were cherished by God, protected by God. They were His treasured possession. But this treasured possession, that's not some syrupy sentiment from an ancient Valentine's Day card. This relationship God has with Israel is serious life and death stuff. And there were serious steps that Israel needed to take to ready themselves to enter into this covenant relationship. And we see those in in verses 10 through 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people." Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Now, this word consecrate, Moses told them to, or God told Moses to have them consecrate themselves. That word means that they had to be set apart for God and for God's purposes for them. And if you think about it, there really is no other way for a sinful people to have a relationship with the Holy God, then for us to be consecrated, for us to be cleaned, for us to be made pure and holy, for us to be set apart to Him. And so on the mountain when God comes down, we see all this drama. It's, it's smoke, it's fire, it's cloud, it's lightning, it's thunder, it's the sounds of trumpets blasting. And, and why all of this drama? It's to signify to the people that God is not like them. God is not like us. God is holy and mighty, and this relationship with Him is serious business. God was about to do something very unique in the world. And so He wanted to mark the occasion with a with little fireworks. And just as God had done with Noah and Abraham, God made a covenant on that mountain with Moses and the people of Israel. And this new covenant was in keeping. This was in partial fulfillment of the covenant God had made with Abraham. Remember, God promised Abraham that He would make His descendants into a mighty nation, that He would give them this, this land for them to inhabit, that He would, through them, bless all the peoples of the earth. And so here at Sinai, Israel learned that they were that great nation. They were the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. They would inherit the land God had promised to their father Abraham and their job would be as priests in this world to be a blessing to all the earth. But this raises another important question. How can a holy God maintain a relationship with a sinful people who were prone to rebellion? What were God's expectations for them? How are they supposed to live as his priests in the earth? And so God gave them his law. Now this was different than His covenant with Abraham. You may remember that when God made the covenant with Abraham, He didn't put any conditions on it. And, and God didn't make Abraham promise to keep up His end of the deal. God said that He would keep up both ends of that covenant. But it's different with Israel. With Israel, God gives them a code of conduct. He gives them some do's and some don'ts to spell out exactly what He expects of them. And this code of conduct begins what we call the Ten Commandments. They they spell out the basic moral code of how God expects His people to live with Him and to live with each other as a sacred community. Now, the first four of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. They're sort of vertical commandments. And the last six commandments deal with our relationship with each other. They're the horizontal aspect here. And today, when we think about these commands, they seem so simplistic. You know, don't steal, don't kill, worship only the Lord. I mean, if, you might read that and think, you know, is that all God expected of them? That seems pretty easy. I mean, couldn't God have given them something a little more sophisticated, a little more challenging? I want you to remember something. The children of Israel spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt. These people, their parents, Their grandparents, their great-grandparents knew nothing but Egyptian culture and slave labor. That's all they knew. Now, we can assume from reading the book of Exodus that they had some knowledge of Abraham. They had some knowledge of of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. They had some knowledge of this God that they worshipped. But the Bible doesn't give us really any indication that the Israelites themselves, while in Egypt, were very faithful at worshipping the Lord. In fact, we have every reason to believe they probably adopted the very pagan, pantheistic religion of the Egyptians. They probably, many of them, felt that Pharaoh was himself a god. They may have had household, household idols that they worshipped at home. They certainly adopted the pagan ways in, of Egypt and the mentality. Can you? None of us in this room can imagine the mentality of being a slave and of what that must do to the way you think What that must do to your soul? To think of yourself as someone else's property? To think of yourself as having no self-determination whatsoever? You know, it took ten plagues to get Israel out of Egypt. But that was the easy part. The hard part was how to get Egypt out of Israel. And so, just as God used ten plagues to get Israel out of Egypt, God took ten commandments to get Egypt out of Israel. These commandments would sanctify Israel as much as the plague saved Israel. These commandments would help to cleanse them of the beliefs and the ways and the attitudes of the Egyptian culture and the slavery mindset. That's who they were. But now God is spelling out to them who they are and who they will be. So let's think for a few moments about these Ten Commandments. You you probably look over the list of commandments and and you think, well, I haven't murdered anyone. You know, I've not committed adultery. I've not stolen anything. I've I've never worshipped another god or or carved up an idol in my house and bowed down to it. So if this is God's top ten list of things to do or not do, I must be a pretty good person. I must be good with God. You know, Jesus once encountered a rich, young Jewish man who felt the same way. He wanted to know what he needed to do to get eternal life. And Jesus pointed him to the Ten Commandments. We read in Matthew chapter 19, the man inquired, well, which ones? Which commandments? Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Now, before we judge him too quickly for being a little arrogant, right? <laughs> I mean, he's A little full of himself. Really, you've, you've kept these. You've never broken one of these, not even a little bit. Before we get too hard on him, we need to be honest with ourselves. Don't we at some point in our lives think the same thing? Do we not compare ourselves to other people at times and think, well, I'm not as bad as them? Do we not hear sermons and think, boy, so-and-so sure needs to hear this. I hope they're here. Never stop to think about how you need to hear it. We're all guilty of what this man has done. And, And most of us in this room could probably pretty honestly say, yeah, we've not stolen or killed or committed adultery or any of these kinds of things. But Jesus comes back and answers him. When he says, what do I still lack? Jesus answers him with a really strange response and one that isn't commanded anywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus goes on to say, if you want to be perfect, go Sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And Matthew goes on to tell us, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, you read that story and you think, what's that about, Jesus? Since when did selling all of your possessions and giving it to the poor become a qualification for salvation. I mean, if if you've got to sell all your possessions to be saved, I think we're all in a lot of trouble in this room. What is Jesus getting at? I want you to remember that the first four commandments deal with our relationship with who? And the last six deal with our relationship with who? With other people. Now, from which of those two groups did Jesus pull the list that He gave the man? from the second group. He lists all these commands about how we're to treat each other, but Jesus doesn't mention a single one of the first four. So this man was relatively okay in his relationship with others. He was a good guy. He treated people well. But the question is, what kind of relationship did he have with God? And and wasn't that important? Why didn't Jesus mention it? Why didn't Jesus say... Don't worship any other gods, keep the Sabbath day, don't take God's name in vain, don't carve up any idols. Why didn't Jesus mention any of those? He did. Jesus did mention those. That's exactly what Jesus was getting at when He goes in to say, sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow Me. Jesus was exactly talking about those first four commands. Because this man's great wealth was an idol. That's what he really worshipped. It wasn't the Lord. It was his possessions. It was his riches that he worshipped. It was himself. And isn't that the crux of the Ten Commandments? In reality, aren't all ten of the commandments about worshipping only the Lord and having no other gods before Him? Look back at Exodus 20 with me. Look right there. God begins the Big Ten with two commands about who they should worship. They should worship who? Him, the Lord God only. And then He gives them two commandments on how they should worship. They should worship by honoring God's name and by honoring God's day. Who they should worship, how they should worship. That's the first four commandments. Now, that is the longest part of the Ten Commandments. Just look at that. Look at verses 2 through verse 11 and compare that to verses 12 through 17. In fact, I did a word count. The first four commands are spelled out with 230 words. The last six only use 75. So we see what is critical, what is important, because we can't keep those last six if we're not keeping the first four, can we? Our relationship with other people is determined by the kind of relationship we have with God. And then the chapter ends, look at the end of Exodus 20. It ends with another explanation of who they're to worship and how they're to worship. God describes the kind of altar they should use in worshiping Him and that they should not make any gods to be alongside me Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. So why all the focus on idolatry and worshiping other gods? Well, remember, these are the rules of the relationship. God and Israel are entering into this exclusive covenant relationship of faithfulness, love, and devotion. The Lord would be their God, they would be His people. It's sort of like a marriage. Now, how many... I've done a few weddings... I've not had anybody give me wedding vows that included things like who's supposed to wash the dishes or take out the trash or that the husband should pick up his socks off the floor or who gets to choose to watch on TV that night. None of them. Rather, the vows deal with being faithful to one another in poverty or in wealth, in sickness or in health. They pledge themselves to this exclusive partnership of love and devotion. And that's What the Ten Commandments are. That's what the rest of the Old Testament law is. When you read on in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you read all these civil, religious, and moral laws, they're basically just fleshing out what the Ten Commandments look like. I mean, yeah, the wedding vows may not say anything about who washes the dishes, but I guarantee you, you're not too long into that marriage when that decision is made. So you come to an understanding about these things. Those rules of the relationship begin to grow so that you can fulfill those vows, so that you know how to get along and you know how to take care of each other and you know what's expected of one another. And that's what the law is. It's helping Israel know how they live out the vow that they've made to God, to be holy, to be consecrated to Him, to be unique in the world. So really to break any of the commandments in some way is to be unfaithful in your covenant to God. That's why James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. If you steal or even just covet what belongs to your neighbor, then the thing you stole or coveted really has become more important to you than your neighbor who was made in the image of God and, and for whom Christ has died. And so that thing that you're coveting or stealing, it becomes an idol on some deep level in your soul you're willing to sacrifice that relationship with your neighbor on the altar of whatever it is that you're coveting. Whether it's their new car or their weekend getaway or the fact they lost 20 pounds and look great. You're willing to sacrifice that relationship for that idol. When you lust after someone, which Jesus said is the same as committing adultery... You're worshiping that person and how they make you feel. When you dishonor your parents, you elevate yourself above them. You sacrifice your relationship with your parents on the altar of self. Idolatry is at the heart of every sin because sin is a rebellion against God and the way He designed things to work in favor of yourself and how you want things to work. To sin against God is to reject His authority in our lives and put ourselves on the throne. And so throughout the Bible, we see idolatry compared with adultery because idolatry is an act of unfaithfulness to God. Hosea 4.12 says, My people consult a wooden idol, and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Now, Israel struggled with this. They had a strong idolatry problem throughout their history, beginning from the very moment they enter into this covenant relationship with God. While Moses is still up on Mount Sinai, receiving the law from God, the people have grown impatient. They're tired of waiting. Moses is up there a long time. He's up there for 40 days. There's a lot of commandments here to write down. Moses is up there a while. And so the people get impatient and they implore Aaron, Moses' brother and their own high priest, to build an idol for them, a golden calf. And so he, he obliges. And he builds for them this golden calf and he presents it to them and says, here is your God who led you out of Israel and they begin to worship it. Right there, before Moses even comes down with the tablets, they've broken the first two commandments. Before they even finish saying, I do, they've become unfaithful to God. This is a serious problem. And the covenant relationship between God and Israel is damaged before it even really gets off the ground. And so there are consequences to this. As Israel is down here worshiping this golden calf, at that very moment, Moses is receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle. And what is the tabernacle? It is the way in which God is going to be able to abide in the midst of His people without His glory consuming them and killing them. So God is up there telling Moses, here's something you can construct. Here's how I can come and live in the midst of my people. And while he's given this beautiful plan where he's going to move in with this people and live with this people, Israel's down there being unfaithful to their vows. And so after this sin, as you read on in the story in Exodus, after this sin, Moses has to meet with God in a tent outside the camp. God says, I'm not even going to come into their midst now. And in fact, God gets so upset with them, He even contemplates just destroying them all and starting over with Moses. And Moses has to intercede and pray on behalf of Israel. And so God relents and decides that, that He will not kill them on because of His promise to Abraham. But then God says, you know, but I'm just not going to go with them. I'm going to send them on to the promised land and I'm just going to stay right here. And the people cry out and say... We can't go without you, God. Please go with us. And once again, in His mercy and patience, God relents and says, okay, I will go with you. And so the people confess. They repent of their unfaithfulness. And God allows Moses to begin construction on this tabernacle. And upon its dedication, Exodus ends with this account in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting. Because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then Leviticus begins with this The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So here God has this tabernacle for the people to meet with Him, and because of their sin, they can't even, Moses can't even go inside. This is what sin does. This is what unfaithfulness to God does. It always separates us from His presence. When we sin against God, even as Christians, it We keep God at arm's length. It drives a wedge in our relationship, in our hearts. It's a real problem that has to be addressed. It's obvious the people are incapable of being holy and faithful to God, so how will He deal with the problem of their sin so that He can be their God and they can be His people? That's what the book of Leviticus is about. It's an important book. I'm thankful we're done reading it, but it's an important book. So what does all this mean for us today? What are the implications here for our relationship with God? Two, real quick, and, and we'll be done. First, when we sin, when we allow someone or something to take precedence over God in our life, we have broken our vows with God. We have become unfaithful to God. James, in the New Testament, uses very similar language to Hosea that we read in the Old Testament. James says this, You adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? We are just as capable of idolatry and spiritual adultery today as Israel was. Now, our idols don't look like fertility poles or wooden or stone statues of fantastical creatures. We don't offer our crops before them or kill animal sacrifices to them. But our idols are just as real and just as wicked. That house that you're constantly upgrading, that promotion you're aiming for that comes with unbelievable perks, acceptance into the school of your choice or into that sorority or that fraternity you really, really want to get into winning the championship game, having that fit and toned body, these can all become golden calves that we're working so hard to mold and to shape. They can easily become gods to which we sacrifice everything. Now you may say, well, David, that's not fair. You could take anything, any issue someone is devoted to and make it out to be an idol. Yes, yes. You're right, exactly, you can, anything can become an idol the minute it becomes a substitute for God. The minute you look to it for your identity, for your purpose, for your peace, for your joy, it becomes an idol. In his book, God's at War, Kyle Edelman says, anything that becomes the purpose or driving force of your life probably points back to idolatry of some kind. And he goes on in his book, and this is fascinating, he advises us not to think of our idols as golden calves, as some kind of a statue, but as a great ancient oak tree with impressive branches reaching in all directions. I think about some of those those, uh, those, uh, great oaks you see down there, those um, um, living oaks that you see down there, live oaks you see down there in Charleston. Okay, there's some like the angel, tree, angel oak, I think is what it's called. Have you ever been there? I mean, you see these giant trees, these huge gnarled branches just twisting and turning in every direction. Think of your idol as that. You have this great tree. Its roots run very, very deep, and they go far. And something different is growing from each branch. On one, it might be a nice bank account. On another, some really delicious food. Maybe you see on one branch a mirror reflecting back to you the you you've always wanted to be. One branch might dangle keys to a luxury car, another a beach house in Florida. The point is this. Idolatry is the tree from which our sins and our struggles grow. But idolatry is always the real issue. It's the tree. Our sins, our problems are just the branches. We need to deal with our unfaithfulness to God. We need to ask ourselves, who or what am I really worshipping? Who or what is the source of my identity or my peace or my purpose? And we have to confess that we are incapable of keeping all of God's relationship rules. Sin is a problem that separates us from God, and that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to do what we could not do. He came to keep God's law fully. He came to live a life that was completely faithful to God. He took care of our sin problem so that we could be in a relationship with the Holy God. So that's the first implication. The first implication is that when we sin against God, we are just as guilty of idolatry and adultery as Israel. But thank God that Jesus came so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be made right with Him. But here's the second implication. As Christians, those of us who are saved, we've been saved out of sin. Like Israel was saved from Egypt, Jesus has set us free from slavery to sin. We've been rescued. We've been redeemed through the shed blood of Christ on Calvary's cross. But that's only the beginning of our relationship with God. When you pray and you give your life to Jesus Christ, you're just saying the I do's. Just as a, a wedding begins a marriage, the moment of your salvation is only the beginning of your relationship with God. God has saved us out of sin, but God still has to get the sin out of us. And that's what the Bible refers to as sanctification. As God making us holy, spiritually transforming us day and by day into the image of Christ. And just as we are not saved by keeping Old Testament law, we are saved by New Testament grace, so we are being transformed every day by the grace of Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 14 says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin and your failures, they're on the other side of the Red Sea. God has rescued you from them. But, like Israel... We are saved to be holy, to be a unique people, to shine as a light in the darkness, like a city on a hill. We are to be salt in the earth. We are saved to shine like stars in the universe and to hold out the word of life. So we still need to live by God's expectations for us. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. I mean, there are certain things that I do or don't do for my wife, not because I want her to love me, but because I know she loves me. Things like... Buying her some cheesecake, even though I know we've got plenty of ice cream at home in the freezer. Because I know she really wants some cheesecake. So there are things I do for her because I love her. And we're not saved by keeping the law, but as Christians we should want to obey God and live for Him because He loves us and we love Him. As the instrumentalists come up, I want to read to you one last passage of Scripture. It was our New Testament reading. But I want us to reflect on it once again with this sermon in mind. Peter says to Israel, I mean, sorry, to the church, but think about what God said to Israel through Moses. Peter says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. He's talking about us. A holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you, he's talking about us, the church, we are God's special possession that we may declare the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. This morning I want to ask you, will you say I do to Jesus' invitation to you to know Him as your Lord and Savior. Jesus wants to save you from sin. Jesus wants to set you free and rescue you as He rescued Israel. Will you today say, I do? Will you come and and say, I want to become a child of God? I want to follow Jesus. Are you willing to lay down the false gods of sin and self, of possessions and pleasures, and to take up the cross of Christ? If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ today, He is waiting for you this morning. And I would love to help you come to know Him. And for those of us in the room that are Christians today, will you ask yourself, am I being faithful to my covenant vows to Jesus Christ? To follow Him? To love Him supremely? To be like Him more and more every day? Or are you this morning guilty of spiritual adultery? Have you allowed someone or something else to take more of a prominent role in your life than Jesus Christ? If you have, then this morning I pray you would confess your unfaithfulness to Christ. Smash those idols in your life and recommit yourself to follow Him this morning. The altar is open if you want to come and kneel and symbolically leave those idols behind here at the altar and walk back to your pew recommitted in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe think about it as renewing your vows. Would you do that today? Let's stand and let's sing. Let's truly live a life that trusts and obeys Jesus Christ.